If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Transporter. No, it's not the one that will beam you from here to the Enterprise. It is the File Transporter, which actually allows you to beam your files between your different devices and store them safely and securely on your own private drive. It's sort of like having Dropbox, but way better because you own it, and it's a lot less expensive. There's no yearly upkeep, just your transporter device hooked up to your network. Now, the people at Transporter have teamed up with Mission Log to bring you some amazing deals, some great discounts on all of their transporter devices. So you can check out all that information at filetransporterstore.com slash missionlog. That's filetransporterstore.com slash missionlog. And for a limited time... They're actually giving away a couple of transporters. So yeah, you can get a transporter for free just by checking out filetransporterstore.com slash mission log and entering your name and information. A winner will be drawn soon and we will let you know via email. So you can buy your own transporter at a discount or you can win a transporter just by checking out filetransporterstore.com. Once again, we thank Transporter for supporting this episode of Mission Log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 97, Encounter at Farpoint. Welcome in to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I am John Champion. And I am Ken Ray with one simple question. Who is the incredibly old guy in Captain Kirk's chair? And where's Captain Kirk? And what's McCoy's granddaddy doing on the Enterprise? And where's the Enterprise? And will somebody call security? There is a Klingon on the bridge. Ken, 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 Ken. Uh, First of all, that's way more than one question. I'm pretty sure it was just one. And uh, second of all, Ken, we're we're, we're doing Star Trek The Next Generation now. The what? Yeah, we we sent a memo. And it's it's a different show. It's a different cast. It's still Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that's going to be up to certain people, whether it's still Star Trek. And if those people want to get in touch with us and let us know what they think, are they glad that we finally got into the next generation? Or do they not cotton to this newfangled Star Trek that's close to 30 years old now? They can get in touch with us if they want to, uh, you know, tell us what time it is when they get this message. Uh, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. We have a cool place online that you can go, missionlogpodcast.com is the uh, place to check out some of the uh, found documents and, and other stuff. Um, we have another cool place online you can go. Mission Log is now on trekmovie.com. Remember, any place you leave a comment for us, uh, we may use your comment on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I do hope it reaches us, though, because we're like 80 years into the future now. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. When we last left off, we, we were comfortably living in the 23rd century. Now, all of a sudden, it's the 24th century. Yeah. And uh, yeah, those kids with their new haircuts and their, their music. And a Klingon yeah. on the bridge. And, yet, and a Klingon on the bridge, yeah. And yet, if you're looking for a Vulcan, just look behind whoever's talking. Because, <laughs> because there's one sort of lurking. Yeah, but, there's but, even a Vulcan kid, remember? Yeah, I remember. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, kids. Kids yeah. today on their starships. I just... Uh, <laughs> well, Ken, if I can set the stage a little bit for you, I've got some trivia, if you don't mind. Wow. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, well, Ken, as I've uh, described with the movies, it's just uh, a load of trivia. So I think we may have to retitle the section just, uh, what's on John's mind this week? <laughs> so, uh, but uh, we have to begin someplace. Where should we begin? Uh, I, I do want to sort of set the stage a little bit. Um, the launch of Star Trek The Next Generation was a long time coming. Uh, Gene Roddenberry was still the executive consultant on the movies, as we discussed in our previous podcast. And um, Next Generation seemed like a place where you could exercise a little bit more power as a true executive producer. And he went about getting as much of the original team in place as he could. You know, the notables here, DC Fontana, Bob Justman, David Gerald, etc. A lot of those familiar names that show up in the early days of Next Gen. Speaking of DC Fontana, she wrote the original Farpoint story and script. Q was added later when they went from a one-hour pilot to a two-hour pilot. Gene himself wrote some additional scenes because they were coming up short in the final edit. So how did we actually get here? Well, the movies were doing well. Um, Next Gen was announced in late 1986, and then it would premiere September 28th, 1987. Um, The original series syndicated was doing great still, you know, 20 years later, it was still pulling in big numbers. Paramount realized that it needed to capitalize on this popularity, uh, but moving the original TV cast back to TV would be, uh, what's the right word for it, Ken? Uh, Expensive. So uh, this opened up the opportunity to create an all-new show with an all-new cast. Like I mentioned, the show premiered in September of 87, uh, except where it didn't. Uh, because, as we know, NextGen was sold into syndication. Uh, it was kind of a rarity then and now for major TV shows to start their lives in syndication rather than on a network. Speaking of those networks, the big three networks at the time, Fox was kind of a baby at the time, mm-hmm. um, they all turned Star Trek down. Uh, they said, well, okay, we'll order a pilot. Or in CBS's case, we'll order a mini series, but not an actual full run uh, first season of the show. Paramount was still behind it, though, and the show was actually free to affiliates that wanted to carry it. So to all the local stations, all those little uh, affiliates that wanted to carry the show, it was free. All they had to do was sell five minutes of ads locally. The producer sold seven minutes of ads, and that's how they made their money to keep the show going. And the show was wildly profitable. That is insane. Isn't it? That's like, so So you go to Channel 17, WZTV mm-hmm. in Nashville, right. Tennessee, and you say yeah. to them, well, you can show that Cagney rerun. Or. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> or this free Star Trek episode. Uh, you yeah. Know, and each yeah. one after that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not a bad deal, I would think. 
No, it's a really good deal. And and to me, it's interesting because as of the recording of this show, the whole model of TV has changed again. And now you've got producers going to the Internet and really having to be creative with how they distribute their stuff. But at the time, more than 20 years ago, they were being very creative with the model of TV distribution. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um this is DeForest Kelly's final TV appearance. Uh, he, of course, was still making the Star Trek movies at the time that this was being made. Um, he was listed in the script and in the call sheet as Admiral in order to keep his identity a secret. And by the way, he was only 67 years old. He was not 137 as the character in the, uh, in the show was. By the way, did you notice the mention of uh, Riker not allowing his former captain to beam down to Altair 3? Did I notice it? It's a yeah. scene. It is a scene. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They, they mention Altair 3 uh, right next door, maybe to Altair 4. Do you know the reference, what am I talking about? No, I can't remember. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? That was like uh, 80 years ago, wasn't it? <laughs> Forbidden Planet. Oh. Uh, Forbidden Planet took place on Altair 4. Well, that was much more than 80 years ago. Yeah, yeah. All right. Crazy, huh? Indeed. Uh, Patrick Stewart was Bob Jussman's choice uh, to play the role of Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Now, interesting, uh, he would have originally had a French accent or at the very least lapse into French from time to time. He did not. Um, yes, they did play around with the idea of a hairpiece for Patrick Stewart, and it just didn't look right. So fortunately, they didn't go with that choice. Jonathan Frakes was Roddenberry's first choice for Will Riker. And uh, speaking of Riker, the relationship that he has with Deanna Troy, yes, as we mentioned before, that is kind of a leftover bit of business from the motion picture, the Decker and Ilea relationship that would have played out in Star Trek Phase 2. Hmm. Now, they did flip-flop, I think a lot of people know this, they did flip-flop the casting of Troy and Tasha Yar, uh, Yar who would have actually been Hernandez in the original script, and that role was originally slated for Marina Sirtis. Other changes, while well, I mentioned Picard, uh, Jean-Luc would have originally been named Julian. His original first officer would have been Kyle Summers, or Kyle. Kyle Summers. <laughs> um, <laughs> though he would have left during the pilot to be replaced by Riker, and that is Riker spelled with a Y, not with an I in that case. And Wesley would have been a girl named <laughs> Leslie. <laughs> Oh, so, and, and there's half of Wesley's life right there. <laughs> right. That, that might have changed Will Wheaton's approach in casting, uh, had he known that. <laughs> um, May well have. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we do have some very cool discovered documents this week. Uh, check them out. They are courtesy of Mission Log listener George. Uh, we've got a studio map at Paramount showing the scale of the Enterprise D. So sort of an outline of what the Enterprise looks like as if it were hovering over the Paramount lot is very, very cool. Um, we have budget sheets for the special effects, budget sheets with a cost of new and reused sets, so go check them out on missionlogpodcast.com. Not to choose sides, but Ken has a point. Who the heck are these people? And what are they up to on this ship they call the Enterprise? One and two. New Enterprise. New Captain. New Mission. We're on our way to Farpoint Station at Deneb 4. 
They're still assembling the new crew, and after that, it's time to explore a part of the galaxy that has not been explored. Time to meet the crew. The booming British baritone is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. The android likes to talk about all the words he doesn't understand. That's data. Troy is in touch with her own feelings and everyone else's. There's a Klingon who reminds us all the time that he's a Klingon. Out of nowhere, a force field-like barrier blocks the Enterprise's path, and a being looks human, but he's not, appears on a flash of light on the bridge. He slash it is called Q, and he tells the captain that the Enterprise has gone too far. They should go back home. One trigger-happy crewman tries to stop Q, but he finds himself frozen. Picard is not too happy about the whole thing. The mysterious intruder, the frozen crewman, after all, it was a phaser set on stun. Then it gets real when Q threatens them all with death if they don't turn back. Q tries to fast forward through centuries of human history, the wars, the prejudice, the pettiness. Picard's offhand comment about being a judge strikes a chord with Q, who then disappears just as he appeared. Picard's ready for escape, and he commands a break at maximum warp. The force field follows the ship, but Picard then announces the separation. Prepare for some dazzling special effects. Acts 3 and 4. Separating the primary hull, the saucer, from the rest of the ship is a big deal, particularly at high warp. They do it, and the saucer part flies off with a majority of the crew, including all the kids and families. The secondary part, containing the battle bridge, flies back to where they first encountered the barrier, and Picard announces an unconditional surrender. At the next moment, Picard, Data, Troy, and Yar find themselves in a mid-21st century-style courtroom presided over by, you guessed it, Q. Picard is now answering for all of humanity, on trial for being a grievously savage race. Picard denies the charges, but Q threatens Data and Troy with death if Picard pleads not guilty. He pleads guilty, provisionally. He's still hoping Q stands by his word that the prisoners, them, will not be harmed. How about this? Give us a test. Picard challenges Q's assumption about human beings by asking for a test. Q gives it right away. They're on their way to Farpoint Station, after all. In his estimation, this will make a fine test. In a blink, Picard and crew are back on the half of the Enterprise they just left. Meanwhile, on Farpoint Station, we meet a little more of the crew. There's brash William Riker, aloof Dr. Beverly Crusher, and her kid, scrawny Wesley, Farpoint is a nice place, but there is an air of mystery about it. As Riker notes, they don't know a whole lot about how it was built and what from. And weird things are happening, like apples showing up because Riker mentioned he'd like one, or fabric suddenly appearing that Beverly thought about. It's better than a cruise of the Caribbean on a five-star liner. Still, a bit weird. Engineer Geordi LaForge shows up to announce the Enterprise's, well, half of its arrival. Riker beams up to meet the captain. Act 5. On board, Yar pops in the VHS tape of the abridged version of what has happened so far to get Riker caught up. Then the rest of the Enterprise shows up, and Picard commands Riker to join the two pieces of the ship together, manually, as in not automated. Cue the dramatic music, because it's about to get dramatic up in here. He does it, of course. Otherwise, the next seven years would have just been about two halves of a ship following each other around the Milky Way. Riker and Picard have a little tete-a-tete. Riker will always err in favor of the safety of his captain. 
Picard wants his first officer to also keep the kids at bay. He didn't ask for a ship full of families. As a bit of a send-off, Data has retrieved Admiral McCoy via shuttlecraft. McCoy, now at 137 and a little older looking than when we last saw him, spars with Data, yet another unfeeling, super precise Starfleet officer. He warms up, though. The name Enterprise is all the good doctor needed to hear. Acts 6 and 7. Q makes another appearance, this time on the bridge view screen, to remind Picard that he is being tested and that the test has a new time limit of 24 hours. As Picard and Riker prepare to beam down to Farpoint Station, Deanna Troy enters. Time to cue the dreamy music. Riker and Troy know each other already. On the surface and inside Farpoint Station, Picard attempts to negotiate with Zorn, the one who runs the place. How about some fair trade? Zorn could use materials and technologies the Federation has, while the Federation were like a crack at the building techniques that have resulted in such a unique station. No deal. Zorn says that his people have no desire to leave and no desire to share what they've done. Then Troy has a moment. Like a mind meld with a horda, she's feeling immense pain all around. Time to call off the meeting, and Zorn threatens to hand over Farpoint during his negotiation to the Ferengi. Riker seeks the help of Lieutenant Commander Data, who is hanging out in the holodeck, practicing his whistling. The holodeck is pretty cool if you don't remember it from the old Enterprise when it went haywire, as if it were some kind of thing that jokes, practically. It can recreate any environment in three physical dimensions by basically using transporter technology. Speaking of practical jokes, we're pretty sure the computer made that rock Wesley was standing on tip over on purpose. Wet kid on a starship? Captain is still not amused. The new landing party on Farpoint is a little bigger and a little better equipped. Troy, Yar, and LaForge go wandering in the lower parts of the station. LaForge finds all kinds of weird building materials. Troy finds more pain. On board the Enterprise, an unknown vessel approaches while Wesley is getting a tour of the bridge. That unknown vessel is very large, very non-communicative, and very much headed for the Enterprise. Acts 8 and 9. The unknown ship scans the Enterprise, but they still don't know what it wants. In Farpoint, the landing party find themselves out of touch with the Enterprise, and Zorn is denying to Picard any knowledge of what is happening. In a moment, the alien vessel begins firing at the planet's surface, not hitting Farpoint, but rather hitting the old settlement of the Bandy people, those who built Farpoint. As Data and Riker navigate the destruction, Picard orders them to kidnap Zorn, who may have some answers. While the alien vessel is still pummeling the planet, Picard orders phasers locked. At that moment, Q shows up to taunt Picard's seemingly aggressive move. Picard is doing what he can. A medical team is on its way, and he chastises Q for allowing the attack to happen if he knew people on the surface would be killed. What you got to say about that? You're still small-minded, says Q. Putting his money where his ship is, Picard has the Enterprise maneuvered between the planet and the hostile alien craft. Well, they would, but they have no control over the ship. On the surface, Riker and Data find Zorn in the ruins of his office, but in a moment he is beamed up by some kind of transporter. Not to the Enterprise, though. Troy senses satisfaction. Q is sensing that Picard is fed up. Riker is sensing an opportunity to beam over to the alien ship and find out what gives. Act 10. On board the alien vessel, well, 
What do you know? It looks just like the underpart of Farpoint Station. And Troy is feeling all kinds of anger from her surroundings. Zorn isn't too far off. He's being tortured in a kind of energy field. Then it dawns on Troy. She's sensing one alien, just one alien around them. Q pops in to remind Picard that time is up. Picard begs for time to help his crew. When they appear on the bridge, it was the alien vessel, a living entity, that returned them. Q starts tempting Picard that he can now destroy the alien and end the threat, but Picard declines. It all starts to make sense now. The alien vessel is an alien, one that is alive and can convert energy into matter. Farpoint Station was its mate, captured by Zorn's people. Now Picard is ready to help it along by aiming a burst of energy from the phasers directly at Farpoint once all the people are evacuated. The alien that was captured on the planet below breaks itself free and joins its mate in space. They touch tentacles and fly away. Picard allows collective awes on the bridge. Troy senses that they are happy now. Q, well, he's still kind of a smug jerk. Picard may have passed the test this time, but Q warns that he will be back. Farpoint will be rebuilt. The Enterprise will fly on to whatever is out there. The end. All right, I got two things for you. Okay, go ahead. Uh, First of all, I caught a lot of grief when we first started doing the original series. Mm -hmm. It's not a landing party. It's an away team. Oh, my. We have ah, moved on, and I'm I'm so happy about that. Yeah, because I I was calling it an away team for the first several episodes of uh, of Mission Log. Yeah, they hadn't invented invented away teams yet. Yeah, Yeah. and people would write write to us and say, you know, you're doing it wrong. Uh, the other thing, I think you accidentally uh, coined an insult. Did I? <laughs> you look Did like I? the underside of Farpoint Station. <laughs> Dude, That's, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the underside of Farpoint Station. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll be hearing that a lot, you know, if we ever go places where lots of people hang out and talk about Star Trek, maybe. You're right, yeah. yeah. After a long night in uh, 10 forward. Yeah, feel something like, like the underside of Farpoint. I feel like yeah. the underside of Farpoint Station. <laughs> you you <laughs> look like the underside of Farpoint <laughs> Station. So what do we have here, Ken? I, you know, to me, this really feels like a pilot. We are taking the time to introduce everything and everyone. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's a luxury that most shows don't have, at least not today. But we're looking at this with nearly 30 years of hindsight. Did you get the same feeling? It's weird to me. You you think we don't do that today? Well, I, I feel like a lot of shows now, mm-hmm. uh, now depending on when you're listening to our show, right? they jump right into the action. And you, you get pieces of character explanation along the way. Uh, but in this, I mean, you literally open with Picard saying, I'm the captain and I'm on this new ship and it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, wonder, I wonder what that is the difference between, though, because as we record this again... Well, I'm thinking about there are certain there are certain storytellers and and he's one of my favorites, Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. get an introduction at the beginning of Buffy the Vampire Slayer of who all of those characters were. We got an introduction at the end of uh, Agents of Shield as to who all of those characters were. Now, one we knew because we'd followed him through the movies, mm-hmm. and then it turns out that some of what you learn about the characters is not quite true. But I mean, somebody who's who's you know sort of telling bigger stories, it seems. Mm-hmm. Even Castle, I think, because, you know, there's a Joss Whedon tie-in there with uh, Nathan Fillion. Even Castle, I believe, started with a, yes, I mean, the cops are already in their action cop part, but, you know, who's this Castle guy? 
Right. Well, he's a writer and he's introduced and he's brought in. I mean, I, I would say that we get more introduction today, certainly, than we got during uh, the original run of Star Trek or the original series. Well, yeah, the original, the original series is like, hey, Captain yeah. Zug, here we are doing what we do every week. Remember, you were here last week and we'll be right, here next right. week, too, because this yeah. is what we do. And that's by design so that when you're in syndication later, it doesn't matter what uh, what uh, order you play the shows in. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it, yes. Is that not also a difference of storytelling at the time as well? I believe so. Yeah, right. for sure. There yeah. you go. It is kind of exciting to meet everybody, though. Uh, even Q. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's all, And it is also interesting that they're all meeting each other for the first time. I mean, it would be harder, I think, to do the... I'm this guy, I'm this guy, if they all know each other, you know, <laughs> Picard would be saying, like, why do you tell me who you are every time? We've been, we've been out here for like a year. <laughs> so it, it's better that he's saying, you know, eh, I, we don't even have a first officer, but I hear the guy they're sending me is good, so we'll find out. Well, and we even get a little bit of that, which I, I thought was a good scene, uh, where he is formally um, – talking to Beverly about her position as chief medical officer and doesn't realize that she put in the request mm -hmm. to be the chief medical officer on the enterprise. And it's that uncomfortable moment with, well, well I, I knew your dead husband and <laughs> I'm going to remind you of that every time you see me here. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> really is a bad lead, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, Beverly, remember that time I brought your dead husband body back to you? Uh, yeah. Sounds like going here. <laughs> yeah. I guess I don't have to remind you of that every time, do I? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Good scene, though. <laughs> it's quite a good scene. Um, uh, other things that kind of stuck out to me, uh, Tasha Yar. Wow. Just, uh, you know, you had a problem with, um, oh, in Star Trek IV uh, with yeah, Dr. Dr. Jillian Taylor, Taylor yeah. being a little too earnest. Yeah. Wow. Did I feel like Tasha is a little too earnest here? And, and just just all all the emotions all the time in your face. Yeah, I, I kind of I don't know if that was the direction or if that was just her, but yeah, yeah. it was sort of like it was sort of like every time they were like, mm, that wasn't quite enough yelling. Can you give me right. just a tiny bit more? You yeah. know, and there was I mean there there were there were little subtle things. I mean like the when Riker first comes on the bridge because he's a he's a real stickler, and I don't know if we should talk about this later or now, but he's a stickler for how things are done. Like they're done right. on Deneb four. Yeah. Chilling. Right. They're in mm -hmm. the mall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Hanging out. And Jordy comes to tell him something. And Riker's like, uh, excuse me, are we doing business here? Or are we just hanging? And, and he like has to like, like Jordy has to stand at attention and do the official, I'm this guy and I'm reporting and here's the official report thing. Right. And then they get up to the, uh, they get up to the enterprise and Picard doesn't welcome Riker aboard. And, yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and yeah. until he welcomes him aboard, Riker's not moving from the door because he doesn't, I mean, technically he doesn't know if he's welcome, even though they've already had like a, you know, two minute conversation at that point. Now sit down and watch an episode of Star Trek. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> that, I, I, I've got another note on that because, it, yeah, I felt when they arrive at Denim 4 and, and Riker comes on board, Picard seems more serious about that parking orbit than anything that has happened up until now. <laughs> I mean, I, I realize that as a character, they're, they're painting the picture of the mature, no-nonsense captain. But man, lighten up. Say hello. It, it's just good manners. I mean, there is literally nothing else going on with the ship at that moment except Data saying, yep, standard parking orbit. And man, Picard is focused like a hawk on its prey. Yeah. Just staring out 
<laughs> staring out through the uh, the viewer, just yeah, parking orbit. Uh, well, his potential know. prey at that point is Riker, though, right? I mean, he's going to test his metal uh, yeah. from the word go, having never met him before. So yeah, yeah, just a guy walking in the room. Yeah, that's, that, that's it. Well, not you know? just a guy walking in the room, though. A guy who may have to take over the ship at some point. Sure. I sure, mean, that's, sure. yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's, we have years to discuss Picard's, well, not bedside manner, but Picard's manner, I guess. But, I mean, they even go to, to, into the ready room, and uh, Picard still doesn't make eye contact with him yeah. at first. And, um, and then he's like, okay, and you're going to go do this thing manually. I mean, I, it, I feel like Picard must have gotten hazed a lot. Uh, something he's taking it out on others you know maybe i don't know yeah. but you know better to i mean put him through as much crud as he can when there's really no danger right well because that yeah. way you know how he's going to react when there's danger which is different than hazing at a fraternity it's like yeah put him through a bunch of crap before we i don't know get rich and fat and <laughs> right. and, and, and you know give each other secret handshakes for the rest of our lives can you tell i wasn't in a fraternity by the way yeah, right I, I, I don't know so yeah, i mean hazing right. hazing in some areas might make a little less sense but yeah put put Riker through his paces where there's absolutely no danger because danger you know could be just yeah. around the corner and apologies to any of you know i have friends who are in fraternities and they're awesome guys so yeah now, now you're back yeah direct direct your emails to john for some reason <laughs> right um a couple of other things that stood out to me uh the music is sometimes great sometimes terrible Pornographic. So, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is a re record. You know, I talked about how much I love the motion picture soundtrack, and this is not just a direct copy of that soundtrack on this. It was re recorded, remixed, blah, blah, blah. So it is different, and it just feels different to me. And boy, sometimes that really stands out. Um, some things that we learned about our own upcoming future, Ken, uh, mid-21st century, we had the post-atomic horror, yeah. uh, as described by Picard, and uh, we also kill all the lawyers, so take your pick, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe weighing out the uh, the good and the bad there. There is, a, there is just an absolutely fantastic warped logic to that. Mm-hmm. They've, they've changed the system to guilty until proven innocent because it would be... Uh, wrong to put innocent people through a trial <laughs> yes and that's yes. like that's almost mad hatter quality uh yeah. logic and yet q is telling it as our history so yeah lots to look forward to yeah yeah can, can, can i do my imitation of uh you as q because there's something you, you had this great line when we talked uh saying uh that q basically encountering picard might as well have just said Wow, Jean-Luc, this episode is really going to apply to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Q's like um, Jean-Luc Picard's own mission log, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Watch yeah. this, Mon Capitaine, and then uh, tell me what the moral is. <laughs> right. Stakes right. are a bit higher with Q, though, because, um, you know, if they get it wrong, they die with us. Yeah. Of course, there are no wrong answers, unless you disagree with John or me. <laughs> in which case, yeah. you won't die, you know. We- yeah, probably. Right. <laughs> we'll just get all the emails. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, in that moment uh, when they're showing the playback to Riker, mm-hmm. uh, it is very nicely edited and from all the right multiple camera angles. So yes. now we know that there are just cameras all over the bridge. They, they got GoPros literally hidden in everything. You know, they actually 
flirted with addressing this in Star Trek Four. I don't remember if we mentioned it or not then. The only problem is the amount of recording that would have to be done. But as they're approaching the Bering Strait, right, in in the Bird of Prey, mm-hmm. to uh, to pick up the whales, yeah, and and uh, they're like, oh, there's another ship coming, and and Kirk says, put it on screen, and they're like hundreds of miles away, and Jillian says, how are you doing this? <laughs> right. And right. they ignore the question because what? It's just something we do. I'm not going to take time to mm-hmm. explain it to you. I got all this stuff. So the idea that there would be cameras everywhere, that they can sort of recreate it. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's sonar. Maybe it's, I don't know. It's something mm-hmm. else entirely. But the amount of storage that you would need to be able to play back <laughs> every single angle from any place is uh, that that might be a stretching believability. Even for the 24th century, that might be. Memory Alpha would need a planet. Yeah, right. They <laughs> were actually would. storing everything. Yeah. But yeah. the good news is you'd never lose your car keys. <laughs> this is very true. You could always yeah. just go back and, you know, computer, show me the last picture of me and my car keys. Oh, that's where they are. In the pinata. That was dumb. <laughs> hey, uh, we do learn a little bit more about Picard. We learned that he's definitely not a family man. He did not want to be on a ship of kids. Um, in fact, Picard is leaning on Riker to make sure that he projects an air of congeniality. Now, um, if it were any uh, snarkier of a man than Riker, he could have said to Picard, or you could just not be a jerk. <laughs> you know, it's not my job to make you look good. Right. Um, but yeah, but, but then it does make you question, you know, what is the point of having a ship full of families and kids? And, and if you do, make sure that that ship has relatively low-impact missions. No, I disagree. Well, I mean, the low-impact missions, we're in a different, and we haven't learned this from this episode, but we're gonna. We're in a different time now. There's going to be a lot less gotta blow something up, gotta blow something up than there was in in the original series. Um, The point of the families, though, I think they were actually smart in the writing. They didn't give it a, you know, five-year anything. There was no yeah. set timeline. We're on a long mission. And right. they even say in the in the beginning of the show, it's, it's you know, it's continuing mission. So, yeah, bring the kids, because otherwise they may be in college by the time you get back. <laughs> right, right. In our ongoing discussion about money and economics and how that works in the future, we did learn that Beverly has an account on board the Enterprise. It's just like a cruise ship. As I mentioned before, you just swipe the room key and bam, it goes to your account. You settle up at the end of the cruise, Um, which is interesting because on a ship that has holodecks and replicators and all this, you could just create whatever form of payment you would like to create. Uh, well, you could also just create whatever it is you want to buy. It's very true. Why, yeah. why she wants that, you know, special Deneb fabric, I don't I don't really know. Yeah, so, like, hey, look at this fabric. Okay, I'm going to take a picture of it with my iPhone, and then I'm going to put a <laughs> copy of that picture into the replicator and say, make me all that fabric. You don't even have to put a picture in your iPhone, though. You can just go back, you know, home and say to mm-hmm. the computer, hey, remember that time I was looking at fabric? Call up that video. <laughs> Right, right, because it's just everywhere exactly. all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, interesting to learn that uh, Jordy LaForge is in constant pain from his prosthetic uh, visor thing. Um, that was an interesting choice, and uh, he stood out to me as really being great 
in this role, just like right from the beginning. He's probably the most relatable person on the show so far. There's something about his delivery, his cadence, his being relaxed um, with everything. Remember how when we were talking about where no man has gone before and we both really liked Gary Lockwood Mm -hmm. uh, because it just felt like he belonged there. He just felt like a guy on his job. The formality of Picard and then that rubbing off on Riker because their scenes are so very stilted and so very serious. We get to lighten up a little bit when LaForge is there. So I appreciated uh, the way that his character was introduced and what we got to learn about him. And by the way, that scene actually was written by uh, Gene Roddenberry. Uh, that that moment with LaForge and the doctor talking about his visor. What do you make of the fact that he's in constant pain? We, we've accomplished so much. Is that the point that, I mean, we're still going to have work to do? There are still going to be sacrifices to be made in the future? Blind mm-hmm. men will be able to see, but, you know, it's going to, it's, it's in the exact a bit of a toll. I yeah. mean, is that the point of that? I, I believe so. Yeah. 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 There might be more to it that we learn later, but, um, but yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> do you want to hit Wes? I, I don't mean, do you want to hit uh, Wes? Yeah, bam. Although that's an uh, awesome well, picture. For people who haven't seen it, that's an awesome picture. <laughs> Can that be uh, an extra found document? Wait, which which picture? The one of you punching Wes. Wesley Crusher. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You got, yeah. This is a great it. picture. This is a great yeah. picture. So so be sure and check out missionlogpodcast.com this week because this picture is awesome. Um, you had a line here about uh, Worf, the, the duality of worse life. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 an interesting thing, and certainly that we're maybe going to revisit going forward. I don't know, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this this is more of a jump than it would have been had we not done this the way that we did it. We we did uh, you know the original series movies, so we went all the way up to mm-hmm. Kittimer in Star Trek Six. But the problem is that's four years from now, mm-hmm. as as um, the original. I'm sorry, as Next Gen starts. And and we've always seen the Klingons, I guess, in Star Trek V, which also hadn't happened yet, now that you think about it. So Klingons have only been the enemy. Klingons have only been the enemy to this point in Star Trek as people are sitting down for the first time ever to watch Star Trek The Next Generation. And there's a Klingon on the bridge. And that's yeah. that's that's kind of a that's kind of a mind blowing thing. And we get to connect those dots and we have connected those dots over the past few weeks doing the doing the movies, but yeah, the first time you turn this on, it's like, hey, wait a minute, those guys are bad guys, except this one's apparently not. And he's still struggling with the, you know, I'm the Klingon warrior, but I'm also a Starfleet officer. It's it's um, a tiny bit of the Vulcan thing, although it's really not much Vulcan thing, only the part where, you know, he's got these two conflicting ideas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Starfleet beats the Klingon right out of him. I mean, he's still, I mean, because he's like, you know, I, I can't, I can't let you go. You're my captain. I have to defend you. And the captain's like, hey, you're a Starfleet officer, mister, and you'll do what I say. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay. I'll be oh. here then commanding a starship <laughs> for yeah. Starfleet. A Klingon's going to do that. Absolutely. Well, half a starship. But still, yeah, that's kind of a, that's kind of a mind-blowing, uh, mind-blowing thing to have happen. Well, speaking of Worf and speaking of Klingons, but particularly Worf in this case, what is the deal with everyone drawing phasers on Q all the time. Well, he keeps popping in. Yeah, but we see what Q does and can do. And <laughs> Picard constantly just saying, like, look, we're going to talk. Put the gun down. Yeah. You know, just just everybody. If you see Q, do not pick up the phaser. OK, I mean, they should have gotten it after the first time. It's a knee jerk reaction, though. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, your security, something comes in that makes you feel very insecure. What are you going to do? Well, yeah, but I mean, come on. <laughs> like, <laughs> at least they didn't fire on him. I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It could have been worse. It, it definitely could have been worse. But uh, getting frozen is pretty bad. You know, they, yeah. they, they've already seen the reaction that that will draw. Um, you mentioned Wesley a little bit. And I, I do want to say that I, I like that scene on the bridge with uh, Wesley and Beverly and Picard. Um, I hate the camera work. But I like the scene. Um, all the handheld stuff is just terrible. Um, but there is something very grounded and very sweet about the way that plays out. Um, and it reveals at least a little something tragic about the characters um, without, say, like Tasha screaming about her tragic background. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was a, a well-handled scene yeah he's um it's interesting actually that you mentioned uh dr taylor earlier uh wes is a little earnest he actually makes me miss the subtlety of dr taylor <laughs> right um yeah. but but that said he does bring a certain golly gee quality that people you know may have lost in in both space and science fiction in mm-hmm. in the mid to late 80s i mean we got 21 years of star trek when this show starts we got 10 years of star wars um there's a boatload of other science fiction that's come and gone. We're going to space on the regular in real life at this point. Although, actually, when this show started, I think we were about a year and a half into not going to space because of the um, because of the space shuttle Challenger disaster. Mm-hmm. But we've kind of gotten used to space, um, almost in the same way that the original series crew was kind of bored with space um, when we first see them in the first few episodes. And and the cool thing is Wes brings um a sense of wonder to the proceedings he may even say wow at one point i can't remember but i mean there's (laughs) definitely a golly gee quality to it and that may get boring at some point i don't know uh but it's a welcome reminder of how neat this stuff would actually be if this stuff were actually you know real and i i I even have to say the handheld camera not my favorite thing luckily it didn't Mm -hmm. happen for that long but i do sort of i get why they were doing it i mean they were trying to say you are looking around the future yeah. You know? No, 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 totally. And, and Star Trek does that from time to time. We've talked about it before, and I know we'll talk about it again, where you have a character that is the surrogate for the audience, yeah. you know, where, where you're really trying to drive home. This is how different and how cool the future will be. And sometimes they're very good at it, and sometimes it's not always successful. Um, but a lot of that here is going to rely on the characterization of Wesley. But for that moment, I, I thought it was really nice. Without the pressure of box office receipts and all that that entails, there's a chance that Star Trek is back to less action and more examination. Is that the case? And do they get down to it right away? When I was talking earlier about this being a, a pilot and really feeling like a pilot, setting up who the characters are, setting up what the mission is, setting up all the differences, pretty much setting the stage where everything you need to know about what this new Star Trek is going to look and feel like. Um, the thing that jumps out to me even more than that is the first Q and Picard interaction. Because to me, it sets the tone for what Star Trek is, 
now for for where we are and when we are and how this new Star Trek will look at the world, will look at the universe. Q accuses humans of being savage and childish. And probably anybody watching that show in 1987 and watching that show now can go, hmm, well, yeah, you might have a point. And Picard says they've grown up. And then Q boils down the 20th century uh, warfare into fights over dividing resources. And then he talks about the wars in the centuries before over tribal gods. And Picard keeps saying we're not like that anymore by the 24th century. Um, he even he says later, look, we know our past even when we're ashamed of it. But we are not those people. And I feel like this is Star Trek. It's either Gene Roddenberry or Star Trek as a whole telling the audience, this is what Star Trek is about. And these are the people that we aspire to be. Um, it really, it, it is really interesting, too, because, I mean, this goes to the argument that we've had for the past few weeks about whether Star Trek can do movies or does it need to be on television. I mean, these mm-hmm. are the kinds of things you can get away with saying on TV. Most studios won't spend millions of dollars on a movie that basically tells the audience that, you know, the way you're acting right now is dumb and you should stop it because there are better things that happen when you do. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you've got Gene Roddenberry, a, a World War II veteran, referring to World War II as, you know, a dumb fight for resources. And certainly and there was a lot more going on, but I mean, he's he's basically distilling war down to what it is right either either a fight for for what's yours against somebody who you perceive as wanting yours or a fight against somebody who doesn't believe in the same god that you believe in um and and certainly there are other reasons and i know that politics and 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 statesmanship and all of that are are much more nuanced than that but here's this guy boiling it down he's like really ultimately that's 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 what this is about Mm -hmm. and we're not even over it at that point i mean not only do you have a, a World War II veteran saying that specifically about World War II. But I mean, we're, we're still, I mean, we're still, we're coming to the end of the Cold War, but you and I both grew up in the 1980s, pretty sure that one day we were going to wake up and half of, you know, some city was going to be gone because somebody would have dropped a bomb on it. Right. And, and, and it, it is again, Star Trek saying, yeah, you know, right now, huh? It's, <laughs> it's going to be so much better right now. I hear you. But, you know, we're going to get through it as long as we keep shooting for a time when we get through it. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that if you had to pull a moment out of Next Gen to say, you know, well, where are we and what are we doing and what are we about? I I feel like that's the moment. So well done for them to to be that specific. And, And I love the nuance that you bring to it about... Gene having been a World War II veteran, and here's Q dressed in that outfit saying, you know, the issue here is patriotism. And Picard's just looking at him like, you are insane. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, it's really great. It's a brilliant scene. And uh, obviously that will, that will inform the differences between Star Trek of the past and Star Trek going forward. Picard says in the uh, uh, in the courtroom scene when he's dealing with Q's charges, he says that that those charges don't apply to us, meaning him and his crew specifically. And I was curious if you and and as we think through it, if I have any thoughts about where the responsibility ends. 
Picard, as the captain of a starship, knows that he is responsible for the actions of his crew. We have learned that in other Star Trek, that the captain is responsible for his crew, even if he had no idea what they were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, To this day, there are good arguments to be made about reparations in our own troubled uh, history and our own troubled past in the United States. Um, Then they have a line. And it says in the year 2036, uh, data says this, the new United Nations made a law. So, uh, by the way, interesting, the United Nations survives and is reborn at some point, 2030s, uh, made a law that no Earth citizen could be held accountable for crimes of their race or forebears. And I thought that was really interesting um, because somebody somewhere is drawing a line. Let me go back really quickly. You say the United Nations survives. Apparently not because we need a new one. Well, it could just be branding, Ken. You know, like New Coke. <laughs> United Nations Zero. Oh, wait, yeah. not that. No. No, no. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it did make me wonder, you know, uh, Picard's ready to just count the whole thing off and say, no, no, we don't have to answer for any of that that anybody in our past did, even though I am from that planet and those are my people and I'm descended from those people. Sorry. But this doesn't have any bearing on me. You know, maybe not a bad argument, but I I really had to wonder where is that line that he's drawing in his head? Well, I mean, I think part of where the line might be is the fact that the Federation has actually passed all of it. And this this goes to the discussion that we had um, on the supplemental edition. uh, And it goes to some of the discussion that we had uh, during Star Trek six as well. If you start from a place where humanity can say, boy, the things we used to do, and you're 400 years past it, my assumption is things have actually evened out for everybody. Does that mean there weren't horrible things that happened? No, and Picard is willing to acknowledge that, but he's not going to pay for it forever, especially if they've gone ahead and made the amends that they need to make with with the people who were wronged. Mm. So, Mm. I mean, you know, if if you're talking about... I mean, you're right. There is a case to be made for reparations today. And I don't, as we record this, and I don't, I don't know the nuances of that. I don't know all of, you know, the arguments for, I don't know all of the arguments against. Sure. But I do know that there are certain situations where people are still held in um, more difficult circumstances because of 400 years of history in this country. And they just are. And if you want to argue that they're not. Well, do that with yourself, because I think most people will agree that it's just it's a little I mean, it, it, it is more difficult for some people in this country because of this country's history. I'm saying it as nicely as I can, just because I don't want to get in a fight with anybody. <laughs> All right. So if we're now 400 years into the future and there's not a single person of color on the Enterprise and the women are still, you know, being smacked on the bottom in order to get us coffee. I mean, then then you cannot make that case that, look, we were like this, but we're not anymore. Am I right, sugar? I mean, you, I mean, Picard is coming from the place that Roddenberry wanted uh, Star Trek to inhabit at least later in life and I know there are people who say well you, you can't really say that about the one in the 60s and okay I don't know whether yeah. you can or not but I mean Star Trek is starting in a place that Roddenberry wanted it to be later in life which is humanity has got it going on and we may we may occasionally or the Federation even has got it going on we may occasionally individuals may still stumble but as a race as an organization as a as, a, as an idea for how we're all going to live we're swinging this is this is going great at this point. So 
if you can assume that we're actually ever going to get to that place, if if imagine the song is difficult for people to understand because they don't have to imagine at that point, yeah, yeah, right. right. Then no, you don't have to answer for what you did because you've done the work to get through it. And so, well, and I so I think it, that's where the line is. It's it's luckily a line that that Picard and his crew have already are already well past at that point, even if individuals may end up going back to the line somewhere along the way. Sure, sure. And, and I guess that there is a lot of um, stuff that we can fill in mentally about what happened between that very troubled 21st century and where we arrive in the 23rd and the 24th centuries. Um, and hopefully those wrongs were righted, those reparations were made in whatever form they may have taken. Mm-hmm. Um but hopefully Q would know that. <laughs> hopefully Q would be able to see all of those strides that were made rather than just Picard saying, yep, we, we made them and we're done. Well, I mean, Q is also testing the individual, right? I mean, something he is, he I, is, I, yeah. I don't mean to keep going back to what happened with Star Trek six and the mm-hmm. um, and the aftermath of that from our discussions. But what I was trying to argue then, and this applies now, is that the organization as a whole was firing maybe on 98 percent. Okay. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's like that good. But individuals are still going to have individual issues. So while Q is standing there, I mean, first of all, he's just a great, he's a great sort of introduction to where we are now and who sure. we are now. Sure. While he's standing there, though, he may be putting humanity on trial, but he may also just be putting Picard on trial. And I mean, and certainly we do see a lot of needling of the individual who is Picard and Picard gets to represent humanity. Luckily, he's a really good representative of humanity. There's a fantastic exchange between Riker and Picard where Riker says, what do we do, Captain, with them monitoring our every word and action? And Picard says, we're going to do what we would do if Q wasn't here. Yeah. If we're going to be damned, let us be damned for what we really are. And what's really neat is that's, I mean, that's, that's, the sad part is you don't get to do the Corbomite maneuver with the next generation, but it's good because Picard's just living it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, that, it, he would not be making that speech, nor would his crew be close to mutiny if, like, the whole Baylock thing happened and the Enterprise got away. Of course, I mean, you almost wouldn't have to tell Helm to turn around and go take care of Baylock at this point. Right. Right. I right. mean, yeah. and that's that's actually kind of a really neat thing where oh, – and, and yet it shows a little bit of the um, – the, um, Oh, flawed humanity, let's say, of Riker that he's like, oh, man, somebody's watching me. How do I act? and luckily Picard's there like well try not to be stupid otherwise act the way you act because you know we we do our best 24 7 365 well that is interesting it goes back to kind of my thing about why everybody is so trigger happy uh and and constantly ready for a fight everybody wants to fight except for Picard you know Tasha is a little too gung-ho you know Everybody below a certain level. I mean, that's why they're not second in command yet. Right. Mm, I mean, mm, it might also mm. be, I mean, it might be seasoning. It might be, um, you know, it might be years of experience. And there may be some people who obviously are never going to make second in command. But I mean, the higher up you go, the the less, um, well, I guess it's really just Troy, Riker and Picard, are the ones who don't draw phasers on cue. But they're also, they're also at the tippy top of the organization, it seems. Right. So it's not just, you know, inherently enlightened humanity. It's training. Yeah. It's a learned, you know, a learned behavior, a learned outlook and attitude. And and they got to get there. They got to work to get there. Yes. Fair enough. I guess. (laughs) Did I just argue against something that I said earlier? It sounds like you tricked me. 
Uh, no, 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 not meant as a trick at all. <laughs> I'm just trying to fill in the gaps. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yes, I would agree with that. I would agree yeah. with that. They're all laboring, though, under this, I don't want to say perfect society, but they're all laboring under this more perfect society, um, certainly, than we have today. So somebody draws a gun, at least there is somebody there to put their hand out and go, dude, come on, we don't have to do that. As opposed to somebody draws a gun, and then somebody else draws a gun, and then, you know, it's like a John Woo film all of a sudden. Right. Speaking of that, do you think that it was foolish of Picard to go back and surrender? Should he have at least, you know, alerted and consulted with others? I understand you wanted to, don't want to bring out the Armada because that would be exactly what Q would condemn them for. Right. Um, but it, it's a pretty dramatic moment that Picard just goes back and says, all right, broadcast a surrender, unconditional. Um, he, he could have been damning the entirety of humanity at that point. Well, I mean, his, I mean, it's actually spelled out perfectly. Their two options are fight or flight. Yeah. At least as far as, um, Yar and Worf are concerned and, and, uh, Picard's going via media, right? Or via media, mm. the middle way. There, mm. there is another option, sit and talk about it. And if the only way he can sit and talk about it is actually surrender, then that's what he's going to do. Because there really is no point in notifying Starfleet, because yes, everybody would fly against them, and Q has godlike powers in a way that we have not come across with a, uh, with a, with a foil, I would say, in Star Trek before. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, their two options are either have a futile fight that ends up getting them all killed or spend the rest of eternity running from this thing. Yeah. I mean, if, if if they're not going to take, if they're not going to try to find some other way, and so yeah, surrendering to him is fine because that gets him face to face. Is that what I would say you should normally do? I mean, if, if somebody <laughs> sails against you, you're just like, oh, oh, I give up, buddy. Right. Um, but you know, if that person has shown an ability to, you know, destroy your ship, freeze people just by thinking about it, beam wherever they want to anytime, maybe you try another way to talk to them. Well, he's an interesting character. I mean, he he blames the humans for so much, but he is actively and, and Picard calls him out on it. You know, he is actively meddling and judgmental and has this superiority complex. I mean, he is full of bad human traits. <laughs> you know, he is more powerful to be sure. So we kind of have to deal with him on that level. But um, he he's he's more human than human, if you may uh, allow me to quote Blade Runner. Uh, I thought you were doing Rob Zombie, but okay. Well, where do you think Rob Zombie got? Well, yes, I know. He is <laughs> he is the Nexus One. Yes, I, I I've actually yeah. tried to listen to the words. Yeah, Q is an interesting character. I know we're not supposed to cross the timeline. We're supposed to pretend like this is the first time we've ever seen any um, Next Gen. I love Q. I just, mm-hmm. I mean, he he just becomes such an amazing character going forward. Um, I, I wish they had done his spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, hey, maybe there's still time. I guess there might be. Yeah. Um, I think the final thing that stood out to me thematically here is um, uh, there are all those great scenes with Q toward the end where he's wearing the Starfleet uniform. He even plops down in the captain's chair, which we know is uh, off limits, except mm-hmm. when Picard allows Wesley to sit in it. Um, and <laughs> Q is... Q is needling Picard. It's an unknown. Destroy it. Talking about the alien vessel. And Picard snaps back. If you'd earn that uniform you're wearing, you'd know that the unknown is what brought us out here. And it's another one of those, you know, just telegraphed messages right from Star Trek as a whole, right to the brains of the people who 
are watching it. This is nailing the mission of Starfleet now, which is to explore. We're taking that to explore strange new worlds to heart. And we're saying that unknown is what we're all about. And uh, we're not about to destroy something that is unknown. Terrific little uh, moment in the show. Thought it was wonderful. Can we also talk about, okay, because we've done all of this and we haven't even addressed uh, Farpoint Station itself. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a living thing. Yeah. Which is in the LA song. Yes. <laughs> right there with you. One day we're going to do this whole show just referencing songs. I think we should actually try that. Once more with feeling. I think we, uh, we would call that episode. Yeah. Um, Farpoint Station is awesome. Farpoint yeah. Station is exactly what anybody would want in a uh, in a space station. Now, I'm not sure why exactly, but okay. I mean, the one cool thing about it is it's like a living replicator, except they don't know it's living. Yeah. It's like a replicator. Just you, you think something, boom, there's that thing. Um, we have had discussions with people recently about, about uh, Troy and whether or not she is helpful or harmful as a storytelling device, at least in these first few episodes. Mm-hmm. This episode doesn't happen without her. She's the one that feels the pain. Riker yeah. and Picard might have gone down and said, okay, well, he's acting weird, and it is kind of strange that I mentioned a Model T Ford, and suddenly there is a Model T Ford. That seems like an unlikely thing for them to just have around. But otherwise, this place is awesome, so yeah, we'll totally do a trade deal with you, and looking forward to working with you. Hey, and just think, if it were Sulu down there, it would have just been guns, been as gun. far as the eye can see. <laughs> just, just popping shots off all over the place. <laughs> We learn that it's a living thing because of Troy's involvement, and then we have a choice. Now, what's cool about Picard is there's no choice. I mean, and I think Kirk would have actually said the same thing as well. I don't know that I would like to think that everybody on Earth right now would make that same choice, but I don't know that everybody on Earth would. And so it's mm-hmm. sort of like there is a bit of a um, thinking about what you're doing, thinking about why you're doing it, thinking about who's being affected by the thing you want, because this place is awesome. I mean, this place is, this place is totally going to rock this section of space. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, because it, it actually um, is oppressive to, uh, to another living thing. They're like, yeah, no, we can't, we, we can't do that. Right. Right. And that's 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 actually a fairly important point as well. And I think we would be remiss if, in our whole discussion, we didn't talk about the fact. Yeah, no, for sure. For that sure. We, you know, we're not we're not going to beat this animal, or we're not yeah. going to work this animal to death, or you know, we're not going to treat this animal like something that is not worthy of 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 consideration because we don't even know if it's an animal. Just right. because we can't talk to it doesn't mean it can't talk, and we don't know. You know, we don't know anything about it except it's a living thing. And while it is totally awesome for us. Uh, it's probably better for us in the long run if we let it go. Like slipping into a comfortable pair of subroutines, we're back to a routine. Time now to discuss the messages, morals, and meanings encountered at Farpoint, and whether they, and the episode, hold up today. It's weird getting back to uh, getting back to the way we used to do the show, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. Time now to do that thing where we where we have watched a TV episode of Star Trek, a long one, I'll grant you. Uh-huh. We watch a TV episode of Star Trek and then try to figure out uh, whether the uh, well, we try to suss out what the messages, morals, and meanings are, and whether or not the whole thing stands the test of time. 
um, if I were polite, I would I would pose this question to you, but I'm going to go ahead and answer it first. <laughs> okay, good. Does go this ahead. episode stand the test of time? I found myself unable to answer that question because I am very excited about being back with these characters. So mm. I don't even know. It's, you know, the music was a little cheesy. Denise Crosby's a little over the top. Wesley's a little too cheap and cheapers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't care. Because I'm because I'm I'm on the Enterprise on which I grew up. I am with the captain with whom I grew up. I am getting to you know I'm I'm now going to I'm going to get to know these characters so much more because while they are my crew of the Enterprise, um, the fact that we're actually studying them now, I, I honestly just find myself very excited by this pilot. So does it hold up? Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, <laughs> I think you might have a more clinical uh, take on it, John. Oh, you're you're gushing like a fanboy, Ken, and I appreciate that. Well, I can't uh, help it. I mean, I know it's I know. this. I mean, yeah. you know, there are going to be bad episodes. I can remember some right now. I'm I'm thinking right now about how much I love the premise of one episode and how much I hate the execution of it. So this is not going to be every week. But man, Jean Luc Picard said, "Hey, you want to take a look around my new ship? Come on in." <laughs> you know. So I mean, what am I going to say? What a dick! He didn't even offer me coffee, <laughs> right, or tea, or anything. He's uh, and he's. Bald. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, there's, there's this this episode. I I I can't tell you whether it actually holds up. So you tell me, does it actually hold up, John? Um. It, well, here's the thing. It, it was great to see this when it aired. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at the time in 1987, September of 1987, and there was not a lot of good science fiction on TV at the time. So this was sort of a revelation, and it was met with huge anticipation. Because if you were a Star Trek fan, you were hanging on to every last scrap of information that you could get about it. There was no internet for you to, you know, find spoilers and argue about something you had not seen yet, mm-hmm. as we do today. So it was a blast to watch it at that time, glued to my TV at the time. It is also a lot of fun to watch now the way we do it. To, to watch this in retrospect and pick it apart scene by scene, moment by moment, and try to figure out what the point is. Um, it's all the stuff in between to me that doesn't hold up, <laughs> you know, like it, it, instead of just uh, having had the, the great pleasure of watching it when I was a kid and it being new and loving it then it, and now sort of allowing myself to fall in love with the show again based on our structure and our format, those are great. But if I were to just reach for something on the shelf and want to watch it because it's uh, a fun or a great episode to watch, this would not be my first choice. Um, So it it feels like two stories stuck into one, which is exactly what it is. You know, we talked about how they they just had to extend from one hour to two hours, so they crammed in all the cue stuff. And boy, talk about you know, striking a vein of gold yeah. unexpectedly because now you've got this great character to work with in the future. It's amazing um, to me that that's a happy accident because yeah, that is an incredibly yeah. happy accident. Right, right. Um, still, the actors are great uh, for the most part. Um, the look of the show is really solid from the beginning to establish the 24th century. May not necessarily be my personal design style, but the show just sort of looks like it is finished from the beginning. And mm-hmm. that's cool. Um, you know, as a production, there's lots of handheld camera work, which I mentioned before, and that's kind of terrible. Um, so it's not, yeah, it's not the best episode of Star Trek ever, but it is one to be proud of 
you know, all the people who worked on this in 1987 should be proud of it because they were able to fit so much good stuff into an episode. Um, yeah, it just, it, like you, it brought me back to that moment of remembering how I got introduced to these characters and how exciting it was to see Star Trek on TV again. Um, sets the tone nicely. This is not the greatest Star Trek uh, story ever told. What's interesting, though, the way the way that we watch it, I actually got mm-hmm. I got more of a feeling of this is a this is a body in a way. The Enterprise crew or, or mm-hmm. for the Enterprise D. It's kind of like one person with each individual acting as a part. Like Yar and Worf are, are sort of like the um, yeah, the, like the fighting fists of the whole <laughs> thing. And Data is just like the pure intellect side, and Troy is the pure you know empathy side. And Picard and Riker yeah. are different levels of sort of command and control. And and Wes gets to be that you know childlike curiosity that we you know mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. have lost somewhere along the way. Whether it was intentional or not, you and I kept talking about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as three parts of one thing. Yeah. It's like we're doing a more nuanced study of that. Like we're not just we're not just saying um, we're not just saying the ethos, pathos, and logos at this point. We're like oh, you know, there's actually a lot more to it. There's the whole you know sensory part of it, and so I mean, even with that, you, you get a little bit of Geordie uh, maybe, or mm-hmm. or just the just the raw emotion part of it. I mean, it's interesting that. Spock was always trying to keep his raw emotions at bay, and certainly and McCoy was fine being emotional, but mm-hmm. but Troy is raw emotion, or or really affected by raw emotion, I guess. She can tamp it down when she needs to, but she's also very much in touch with it. Um, it's It's possible going forward, and I've honestly never watched it with this lens, so I can't say for certain, but it's possible going forward that we're going to get a much more nuanced study of, of, of people yeah. going through... Uh, going through whatever trials people go through um, with this uh, with this telling. Or maybe they had two hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and they were like, oh, it's, it's, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's really concentrate on the pain. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And maybe we'll do another two scenes of that. And that's, there's three minutes of her two hours gone. So what, what's the message or messages that you picked up? Uh, well, certainly there's the whole... Um, the whole thing I was talking about at about uh, Farpoint Station, I don't really, I didn't really come up with a great word thing for that. I mean, it feels like an anti-colonial statement in a way. It feels like a uh, guarding your resources statement. It feels like a non-exploitation statement. I, I kind of just want to boil that idea down to, you know, don't be a jerk. <laughs> Which yeah, may sure. sound crazy, but your yeah. needs are not, I mean, your needs don't necessarily, hey, how, how about this? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. I mean, just because it's something that's going to benefit you doesn't mean that it's necessarily something that's beneficial for everyone, and that has to be taken into account. So, I mean, that's sort of one, and and I'm pretty sure we said some others. What about you? Um, yeah, well, what you just described and what you described before uh, really made me think about something that we've said before, and I know that Rod has said before, that... Next Gen is the difference uh, between, you know, Gene Roddenberry in his 40s making Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry in his 60s making Star Trek and making something that is more nuanced and is more mature and um, will have all these great traits that we'll get to kind of tackle over the coming months and years. 
in this particular story and encounter at Farpoint, uh, I felt like the message of the story seems to be about our responsibility to how we treat our world and the, the bigger world, the galaxy around us, from each other to every other living creature that we may find that may not be like us. This is the kind of kind and gentle but curious Starfleet that we saw glimpses of in Devil in the Dark and and other TOS episodes. I think the message from Star Trek, from, you know, capital letters, the big entity Star Trek, though, seems to be something a bit more aspirational than we saw in the original series. We're drawing a much clearer line between the way things used to be, war, prejudice, irresponsibility of the 20th century, and the way that we we definitely want them to be, uh, the post-scarcity economy. We've had an email correspondence with listeners about that. Uh, we're intellectually rigorous. We're curious. We're nonviolent. These are all the things that we aspire to be in this better, brighter future. There is another thing I think to keep in mind when we're talking about um, at least the launch of Next Gen. We spent a lot of time when we were talking about uh, the original series um, speaking about the fact that there were three channels, unless you lived, you know, in a major, major metropolitan, in which case you might have five, right? Mm -hmm. um, we now have probably, I want to say, I probably had like 40 television channels when this was on, which was nuts. 40 channels. There are so many different Whoa. things that people could watch. I know. Yeah. Um, uh, 30 something had actually happened at this point. There was a whole, for people who don't remember, there was like a whole <laughs> one hour drama about people in their 30s uh, just, you know, sitting around talking about how weird it is to be in your 30s. <laughs> we're, we're in a different we're in a different landscape as far as television programming at this point as well. You can have a space show that's also a bit more reflective than maybe the original series was. In fact, you would have a harder time in the 80s, I think, having a show like this that wasn't somewhat reflective because that was sort of a it was sort of a thing of the times. Right. Yeah. Um. And I'm not saying that that's, I mean, it is, it is, it is Roddenberry writing older, but then it's also, I don't know if it's a more mature television audience or if it's just a more self-reflective television audience or, or a television audience that's willing to accept something other than swashbuckling, other than Wagon Train to the Stars, because there's no Western on TV at that point, mm -hmm. as far as I can remember. Um, so... I, it, it, that's sort of an interesting thing to think about. We we have we have sort of sat here and said, well, remember it was a it was a much it was a very different time in the 1960s. Well, the the late 1980s were a very different time than the 1960s as well. And so, I mean, there are going to be things, I guess, going forward that we're going to watch for that are going to be very much of that time too. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, do you think that the uh, the messages as discussed here hold up? Yes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah, yeah, totally. I don't think there's one that we're like, oh, well, today it would be different. I mean, sadly, I mean, we do still have the whole exploitation issue. Yeah. Uh, exploitation of resources may be to the detriment of everybody else around them. You know, mm -hmm. so yes, I would say that, that it holds up. Maybe what they should do, though, is cut out the Q parts and just, you know, show the episode that they had Jean-Luc take part in, or that Q had Jean-Luc take part in. <laughs> Um, right. If, if you want to try to, if you want to try to hammer that message home. Well, Ken, good news. We're just getting started. Next week, there's more Next Generation when we talk about the Naked Now.
some of the music formation log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. If I understand the title of next week's episode, it's clothing optional. Maybe don't listen at work. And transmission.